the Anesthesia Podcast. Good evening. My name is Tim Ragawal. I'm one of the editors of Anesthesia, and I'm really delighted you could join us this evening to discuss our Women's Health Special Edition, which we're launching tomorrow on International Women's Day. Um, I'm one of the editors of Anesthesia. I'm a cardiac anesthetist. I work at Manchester Royal Infirmary. Um, and I'm joined this evening by Ed Mullins. Ed is an obstetrician. He guest edited this issue with us. He's a lecturer at Imperial College and he's dedicated his career to improving the health of women and their children. He was editor of chief of the chief medical officer's annual report entitled The Health of the 51% Women. I'm also joined by Dr. Alana Flexman. Alana is an anaesthetist in Vancouver in Canada, and she's got an active research interest in equity, diversity and inclusion. She currently practices at St. Paul's Hospital, where she's the director of anaesthesia research, and she's a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia. She's involved in multiple aspects of equity work, including serving as inaugural associate editor of diversity, equity and inclusion for the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia. And she's vice president of the Society of Neuroanesthesia. Um, I'm delighted she can make time for us today on her Sunday afternoon in Vancouver. And then I'm finally joined by my fellow editor of Anesthesia, Helen Laycock. She's currently a post-CCT fellow at Great Ormond Street Hospital, and she specialises in paediatric pain. Um, and she has co-edited this special edition with me. So, Helen, I wonder if I could pass to you to introduce the issue and some of the articles in it and why you decided you would take it on. So, um, I think as part of our editorial meetings, I was asked to um, think about women's health and think about whether we had enough to put a special issue together. And um, fortunately, sort of the inspiration really came from the report you've already mentioned, which was the 2014 report by Dame Professor Sally Davies, which really highlighted that not only is maternal health important to women, but actually there's far more outside that that we really need to think about. And um, as an inspiration, I then thought about the authors and happened to know one of them and rang Ed and actually brainstormed with him some of our ideas. I mean, I certainly remember having a phone call with you, Ed. I was on a train up to Glasgow and I'd got some ideas and you were really able to help formulate them. And from there, it's just sort of snowballed. We had some great input from Professor Nuala Lucas to do with thinking about topics in maternal health as well. And really, the plan was to have two parts to the issue. We've got some fantastic, somewhat controversial editorials, which I'm really excited to hear what people think about. But then we have a section with three articles on women in anaesthesia, how we work and how being a woman affects us. And then the rest of the articles are about women's health. And Ed and I thought it was really important to take a cradle to grave approach, really looking at women's health across a lifetime. So we start off with adolescent gynaecology, we go through um, fertility sparing surgery, especially for women who have cancer when they are young. Uh, there are two fantastic articles I know we're going to talk about on anemia, both in healthy young women and also in maternity. And then there's Professor Lucas has written a great article on women and COVID and how that's indirectly affected their health and what we need to think about for the future and how pandemics affect maternal health. 
there's a fantastic article on maternal mental illness and the sort of pregnancy and peripartum period. And then three big hitters afterwards on chronic pelvic pain, which is just so common. One in five women have that condition um, obesity in women and then finally cardiovascular disease in women. And to sort of round it all off, thinking about female cancers, which often occur at the end of life. There's a fantastic article from some of our colleagues in America on enhanced recovery in um, gynecological oncology surgery and how patient reported outcomes are important at really moving um, that forward and really looking at patient outcomes there. So sort of hopefully we've got quite a rounded issue. I mean, Ed, I don't know what your thoughts are. We sort of had an initial sort of conversation, but do you think we've covered most things? I think it covers a fabulous range. And as I was saying when we were speaking before we started, I think the very best thing about this edition is that it exists at all. And I always think the best work and the best research comes when people step out of their, their area of work or their silo and collaborate together. So it's fantastic. And there are so many crucial interactions with anaesthetists and obstetrician I work on late award work very closely with mine is fabulous to see with I've just lost Ed there. Have you still got him? And um, I've lost him as well, which okay. is unfortunate because I was just talking about um on Labour Ward. Hopefully he will come back soon. But um I think Seema that's really where you know it all came from and what I hope that we've covered. And for me some of the most interesting articles were the ones on women in the workforce and being a female anaesthetist. And I know that you're going to talk to Alana about that because, you know, as a female academic, it's just a fascinating topic. I mean, I think we, we've discussed before, haven't we, how we both found ourselves becoming more feminist, having read some of the articles that were submitted to us. And Alana's was certainly one of those that made me want to jump up and down and say, come on, we can do better than this. Because Alana, I think you wrote very eloquently about how women are underrepresented in both academia, but also in research and anaesthesia. And I know that Rosie's article also discusses how women are underrepresented at that kind of consultant level. So something like 50% of girls, well, 50% of medical students are women, yet only about 30% of consultants. And so, Alana, how do you think that we can improve women in research? How can we get more women interested in research? Yeah, well, that's that's the million dollar question. Absolutely. And I would echo Ed's comments about just having this whole issue um, and having read it this weekend. It's absolutely amazing. And it's it's so fantastic to be able to publish such a spectrum from this perspective. And I think this speaks to the reason why you need women and diversity of perspective at this level to be able to produce an edition and issue like this. So in terms of academics and women, um, it's obviously a complex issue. And as you pointed out, um, women have been represented in medicine at greater than 50% for many years in both the UK and Canada. Um, it's for actually as uh, over 20 years. So what we're dealing with now, we're starting to see that this isn't really so much a pipeline issue anymore. It's becoming more of a multidimensional issue. And I think this is where the research into representation is so critical to shine a light on where these gaps occur and exactly at what point in the pipeline they're occurring. 
So we can see that women come into medicine at high rates. And in fact, women are graduating from medical school at higher rates than men. But when you look at, um, for example, what specialties they go into, there's clearly um, a gender effect there where women go into certain specialties such and very highly represented in, for example, obstetrics or pediatrics and less represented in other specialties. Anesthesia kind of depending on the country comes in around the middle to lower representation. But when you move up the ranks in academia, you see a gradual drop off in diversity as you go up. And that's both in the faculty uh, promotions through the ranks, but also into leadership positions and into what I consider the critical gatekeeping roles. So the, the heads of departments, the editor, editorial boards of journals, um, the people who make decisions about grant funding and really allow certain types of research or certain types of people to progress into the field. And I think when you start to see that drop off around at the leadership or senior faculty level, then you start to see uh, uh, a lot of the strategic decision making being made by a more homogeneous group of people. And I think, as you pointed out really nicely, Helen, in your editorial, like when we lose that diversity of perspective, we lose, we all lose. Like this isn't just about one group winning or not. It's actually the whole field of medicine benefits by having a greater diversity of opinion and allowing this type of research and broader research around all these issues to do with equity to be published and to be seen and to, to make progress in these issues. Um, so we, we identified several aspects. What's, what's clearly delineated is the representation issue. So we can see that diversity, especially with gender, where there's the most data decreases as you get into more senior positions. But the, the actual barriers as to why that happens are a little bit murkier and it's harder to, to study them. But we have identified some issues that certainly contribute. So we know that family responsibilities, parenting, um, outside of work responsibilities are disproportionately held by women. And that applies even within when you look at women physicians, even when they're married to other physicians. Um, and we also see that there, there's gender bias that we see in grants. Um, and it's some of that's to do with when you start judging on reputation, we see introduction of some bias there. Um, we see that there's sexual harassment and discrimination in the workforce that's been also been documented through several facets in multiple countries. And that uh, almost certainly has an effect on women as they pro progress through the ranks and decide whether or not to pursue an academic career or enter into research. Um, there's a pay gap, which is a whole discussion in and of itself, which um, is also a, a form of discrimination and uh, bias that makes it harder for women to do the work they do. Um, and the type of work that women are asked to do, say, within a department. So that's, you know, we're starting to see a little more data on that around who gets asked to do the, the activities that are good for promotion, that get you further, that get paid. Um, and a lot of that's actually an unknown. So I'm a big fan of looking at data and actually trying to collect data to show where these problems are so that we can address them and then track progress over time. I mean, certainly your piece is fantastic. I think that Rosie also wrote a little bit about how, about the gender pay gap, but also about how women are under, underrepresented at that kind of consultant level, specifically in some of our specialities. So in kind of neuroanesthesia and cardiac anesthesia. Yep, absolutely. Um, so it's not only within by specialty, it's actually within the specialty itself. And the, the data is a little hard to pull out on that. But what we do have to date suggests that, yes, absolutely. Women are underrepresented 
probably in cardiothoracic anesthesia. Um, neuroanesthesia is a little bit under, um, but it is hard to capture the whole spectrum. But um, I'm almost certain that women are overrepresented, for example, in obstetric anesthesia, just looking at some of the data we gathered from a conference speaker list. So um, yeah, there's definitely within the specialty too. And the reasons for why that's occurring is, is interesting. And also looking at compensation around those different types of specialties. And I think one of the things that we've seen, I mean, I hate to discuss the COVID pandemic, but as we have seen over the COVID pandemic, is that women have had to take on the vast majority of those childcare responsibilities. So even if they're both working with similar type jobs, it's the women that are having to step up and take on the bulk of the childcare, take on the bulk of the homeschooling, while the men are really just left to get on with doing their work. Yep. Yep. I think the COVID pandemic, unfortunately, is going to magnify those issues. And as probably all of us have experienced, it's it kind of pulled the rug out under most people's childcare plan, most people's um, approach to homework. Um, you know, it's very hard to homeschool your children when you have two full-time jobs and suddenly your daycare shuts down or your kids are sick or everything became much more fragile in the last year. So obviously in our issue, we had um, an article that's written by Nuli Lucas, which is about the effect of the COVID pandemic on obstetric care. Ed, have you had a chance to read that? Yeah, it's fantastic. And I've worked with Nuli for a short time when I was in Northwest London. And the article picks out some of the, the themes that we've seen very heavily in obstetrics. Um, the reduced access to care uh, in COVID as people worry about coming to hospital. Um, the determinants of health, which are specific to women's violence against women, which do seem to have got worse during the pandemic. And women's aid surveys tell us that only abusers using the pandemic against those who uh, there's violence to, but also that the pandemic has made it far harder for women. Um, the increased burden of homeschooling is another large one. Um, and women have had difficulty getting access to basic services. And we know that access to contraception is the UK, uh, but getting access to reliable contraception, like long-acting coils and subdermal implants, has become especially difficult too. But it has driven innovation. Um, and I'm not trying to say the pandemic's a good thing, but uh, it has changed some things. So in the UK, teleabortion, uh, has finally become a reality. So women don't have to in-person attend an abortion clinic where they might have to run the gauntlet of testers uh, in order to get access and an evaluation of that service up to 10 weeks of gestation, uh, which is fabulous. Uh, the progesterone-only pill has become available over the counter uh, in the UK as a safe contraceptive for women to use. Uh, and we in obstetrics um, in northwest London have adopted uh, not a new service, but a new approach where we're giving all women who go home after having a baby their choice of contraception to go home with rather than telling them to go out uh, and look for it. We've also seen sort of fascinating differential effect of the pandemic. So when a woman in pregnancy gets COVID, she's more likely to have a preterm delivery, and that goes up by about 60% any setting. And we uh, reported on both American Association of Pediatrics and our own pan-COVID data. But lockdown reduced extreme preterm birth in Denmark, Irish, and uh, UK data. Uh, and that was fascinating. And we started to say, well, what else fell in lockdown that might influence preterm birth? So it's been a bit of a hypothesis generator as well as a driver of innovation. And so I hope new research angles will come out. I mean, for me, Ed, it was just um, reading Nula's article, it was just really fascinating to think about some really basic things that um, I'd never really thought about before. So, you know, the 
the routine blood pressure monitoring, how oh. often that happens in women who you'd put in a sort of low risk category for having yeah. preeclampsia or being at risk of preeclampsia and how that impacts on people, how people present to services. Mm. And as you highlighted, the issue of gender based violence around pregnancy thought about gender violence but I hadn't thought about how it impacts on pregnant women and you know those those posters that are on the toilet door that women get to look at on a you know every time they turn up to an appointment in a hospital are not there to sort of allow women the space and time to access services that could help them and we know that violence is increased around the time of pregnancy and birth so I learned so much from that article about indirect effects of a pandemic. We learned so much, I think, that Nula highlighted from the Ebola crisis uh, and how uh, and we can see the effects of that now coming on. And I wonder how long, Ed, do you think it'll be until we see the indirect effects of what we're experiencing sort of in 2020, 2021? Well, we normally get our maternal mortality in the UK reported with triennial um, maternal mortality audits. I have a feeling that data on this. Um, Nula also picked up uh, how the pandemic has, um, say through the recovery trial, increased women's equity of access to pragmatic RCTs um, for the use of drugs. And although very few pregnant women actually got recovery, this was a fabulous example of how you say, okay, this is the real world. We're going to recruit women into a drug trial and see how it works on a very large scale. And it'd be fantastic if that got taken forward as well. Um, but yeah. Going back to the blood pressure thing, we've worked out it would probably be cost effective if every every woman who booked with us a twenty pound home blood pressure monitor to reduce their in person appointments. Um, but we also found out that women don't feel that there's as good a bonding, satisfaction, interaction, or protection in their maternity. They have to do more of their appointments remotely. So we're going to have to evaluate that very. I mean, well, I think one of the big things that's come out of the COVID pandemic is how the effect of social deprivation has really amplified um, people's ability to cope both with having COVID, but also with lockdown. Um, and I guess that what we'll find from the maternal figures is also the effect of that social deprivation and how the lack of access to healthcare has affected those women far more adversely than other women. I think um, one of the things of what we found in one of the articles from Rock Cantwell when he talks about perinatal mental illness is that social vulnerability and deprivation obviously leads to an increased risk in this kind of perinatal mental illness. And he talks about how up to 20% of women are at risk of having perinatal mental illness and how that adversely affects both their health and the fetal outcome. And presumably we'll see that amplified over the next few years, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So the lead for our perinatal mental health services was one of the foremost voices speaking against remote consultation. Uh, and about 20% of our pregnant women uh, online or over the phone on average. And our perinatal mental health service, a very firm 0% over the phone. Um, so yeah, those, those indirect effects um, remain to be seen. It's really but I think also that touches on um, sort of some of the issues Sheila raises in her article about intersectionality and mm -hmm. how actually so much, you know, when we talk about global women's health and it, it's so beautifully put 
by her in her editorial that global women's health, everybody thinks about middle and low income countries. And actually, global women's health is about women who have health inequalities and they occur in all countries. And there are lots of different drivers in different economic circumstances. But actually, we need to think about women's health and the inequalities of women's health across the globe rather than, you know, worry about what's happening in country X or country Y or thinking that we in, you know, country B are completely um, away from any problems with women's health because we are a high-income com- country and obviously everything's equitable and actually that doesn't seem to be the case and it sort of then sort of spirals into all the sort of areas that we've sort of touched on, I think, in this issue. Well, and when I was doing some of the research for my editorial, looking at um, ethnic, ethnically diverse women, actually there's a lot of evidence in the United States about how black women have far worse health outcomes than white women and how they are more likely to have um, a stillbirth. They're more likely to have an early um, termination of labour. They're more likely to be committed to a mental institution really no reason that's obvious apart from the fact that they have this risk factor of being black they also more likely to have untreated hypertension untreated diabetes and this in a very wealthy country where you would expect there to be equity of access to healthcare where there just isn't and i think alana you touch on intersectionality you know like it, it just seems to go into every area of this of this issue, really, because, you know, you talk about it in your article as far as, you know, academic success is concerned and progression. And, you know, often within healthcare and within, you know, our working roles, often the experience is the white woman's experience. And that's what the normality is. And and perhaps there's there are so many more factors at play here. Yep, absolutely. Um, intersectionality is a huge, huge component of this. And, and it really um, speaks to the unique experience that different people have depending on their intersection between all their dimensions that potentially are marginalizing. Um, absolutely. And and we, you can see that and, and for, uh, for better or for worse, gender is probably one of the better studied dimensions, but there's the, the other ones are equally important. They're just, we lack some of the data that's needed to actually study some of that. Um, and uh, in some ways, like for example, Canada doesn't collect a lot of, for example, like data on race and ethnicity of its faculty compared to genders over the years. So we simply just don't have the data to look at it, but there are definitely effects and magnification of some of these issues um, when it comes to people with intersectional identities. Um, and, and you can see it in um, leadership positions, in all of these issues in research, um, and how critical it is that we look at specific groups and their experiences um, and not just have it be a global women's perspective, but actually within that as well, that for different uh, experiences and and race ethnicity is a big one that should be examined. It's interesting, Helen, that we were talking earlier about Rosie's article about women in the workplace and how women are perceived in the workplace and how they cope in the workplace. And one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading Toby's article on anemia, so Toby gives a very nice overview of anemia in kind of so-called normal women. And he says that over one in three women have heavy menstrual bleeding. I wonder, how do these women cope at work? Yeah, they carry on and they're expected to carry on throughout, despite having this heavy menstrual bleeding. And then 
throughout the menopause as well, where they're having these kind of changes in physiology, which are, are normal, but actually are quite drastic changes in their physiology, but expected to just keep working. I mean, it, it's fascinating. I, I, it was a real eye opener reading um, women in the yeah, an, anesthetic women in the workforce, because I hadn't really thought about being somebody doing a solo list in a distant site and how one would cope if one was going through the menopause. You know, it, it's simple things like that that you don't think of. And then it made me think about where I work, you know, and things like period poverty. And can in the middle of the night I buy products for menstruation? You know, are they there? Are they available? You know, simple things about the workplace, how it affects fertility, the impact of the workplace on breastfeeding. And all of those simple things that you perhaps don't even think about, just natural physiology of a woman. And yet it's something that's so important. I mean, Ed, in the 2019 Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology article, there's a big section, I think, on women in the workplace and the menopause. Yeah, I mean, 25% of women going through the menopause will seek healthcare advice for it, which is an enormous number of people. Um, and one of the things we found when we were doing the, the CMOs report was that um, it was very much down to how it affected just sleep and self-perception uh, amongst anything. And actually, women's performance at work was not objectively changed, but they very much felt like uh, it was. Um, we work with the Faculty of Occupational Medicine, and there are actually guidelines now for large organisations um, for women to look at occupational health for women going through the menopause. And this is something that affects healthcare workers very much on a socioeconomic gradient, just like everything does. And we were very surprised when we did the CMOs report. We got a huge amount of pushback from Jenny Murray on Women's Hour, who said that menopause is a problem. You know, I sailed through it. It was absolutely fine. What is everyone talking about? And then she got absolutely bombarded by everyone else in the world who didn't necessarily have a wonderfully secure job and a fabulous team to look after her. And if you, you know, if you think about the person doing a lone list, you know, they could be severely impacted. If you think about the, the HCA, you know, working through the night, um, they'd be perhaps even heavier, have an even heavier effect. I think the other thing that Toby's article on anemia, so there are two articles on anemia on, in mm. this issue. One is very much looking at maternal anemia, but one is looking at anemia in the so-called normal women. And Toby Richards, who's one of the authors of the PREVENT study, in fact, I think he was a CI for the PREVENT study, um, has done a number of surveys looking at women in different roles. So he's looked at nurses, he's looked at women who are running marathons. And he finds that in one cohort, 30% of women who've got a normal haemoglobin are iron deficient and they've got symptoms of that iron deficiency. So they're exhausted all the time. And because they've got so many roles, they're running marathons and they're working and they've got children, they think that that exhaustion is normal and they don't go and seek medical help for it. And what they find is when they have some iron, even before their haemoglobin changes, they feel better. And so there's this kind of untalked about pandemic of women who are iron deficient and exhausted who could be getting treatment but are somehow being denied that access to that health care. Yeah you wonder how you could increase the equity of access to that and the other article talks about how you treat it as well um, and there's this very interesting research that goes on around hepcidin and how alternate day iron dosing might be more effective than daily. We tend to pile in with the iron after uh, someone's given birth you know two times a day three times a day and of course, we now know that's disastrously wrong. And we just... But yeah, as we were saying before the call started, what if you did correct this for every one of those 30% of women uh, around the world? What would you achieve? Fabulous. 
Yeah, again, I think it speaks to sort of these the issues that often women's healthcare is siloed. Mm. And so I think Katie Vincent illustrates beautifully in her chronic pelvic pain article um, that women have a really long and frustrating journey before they get to see a specialist in chronic pelvic pain. Actually, they've been to see gastroenterologists and numerous gynecologists and their GP. And often with a normal surgery or normal test, they are sort of made to feel like their pain isn't real, that there's no pathology behind that pain. And that means they feel really unheard. And what I loved about her article was there's a section about patient voice. And I think there's an example of a woman who has pelvic pain really illustrating how hard it was for her to have all of this pain and nobody realised that it was there and not be heard. And suddenly she went to a specialised service where everybody understood it, understood the true multidisciplinary way of treating it. And suddenly she felt just being listened to and understood and cared for in a sort of comprehensive way allowed there to be benefits. And I just feel there's so many areas of women's health that are siloed. You know, this is this bit, this is that bit. And perhaps... What I'm hoping with this issue and also with really the movements forward in the UK with women's health is that actually we're looking at it as as a continuum across a lifetime. And it's not that we just dip in at these tiny little bits and maybe only really concentrate on women for the five years or so where they are reproducing actively, but actually think about the whole of the lifespan of a woman. I mean, similarly, in Antonio de Mavario's article on cardiac disease in women, he discusses how cardiac disease is the leading cause of death in women worldwide. Yet because of their differences in biology, they present differently. And so quite often they get misdiagnosed, they get missed completely, and they can end up having long-lasting cardiac disease, which is undiagnosed, they're less aggressively treated. And so they end up having worse outcomes. I know we've talked about this, Ed, haven't we? It's a real point to sort of when they access obstetric care is a real point to like make sure that their health in general gets better for the rest of their lifetime. Yeah, the ideal model would be one that wraps around all the resources that a woman needed at every point that they encountered healthcare. That's the ideal, of course. And we've also talked about how in pregnancy, pregnancy-induced hypertension, gestational diabetes, these sorts of things are revealed. They're markers for later life health. And there's that very interesting British Heart Foundation research talks about delayed diagnosis, misdiagnosis. With the Babylon Health app, for example, you put in the same symptoms for a man and a woman. The woman was diagnosed with anxiety and the man was sent to hospital for an ECG. You know, it was pretty fascinating when you look yeah. at it. I, I also think what, when I read about the anemia article specifically, I thought those were fascinating and mainly because I hadn't really thought about it. But as an anesthesiologist, all of us I mean, we, I've been involved quite a bit with, you know, preoperative preparation, giving people iron to get their hemoglobin up. We don't have a different transfusion threshold for women. Why would we have a different threshold for anemia? Like it's, and then on, on top of that, body size and being female is often a risk factor when you do uh, prediction modeling for transfusion. So it's, it's all rolled into why were these, why are we have these assumptions that it's okay for women to be anemic somehow when actually they're at higher risk of being transfused in a big surgery. So it kind of, it, it's one of those things I just accepted for a long time, but I actually think after reading that, it, it really confounds me as to why there are two thresholds for anemia. I mean, in some ways you think that certainly in, in cardiac surgery, where I practice, you should be trying to push the hemoglobin of women higher than men. Yeah. 
just offset that risk of transfusion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think that we've kind of had a really good chat about this um, issue that's being released tomorrow morning. So it comes online at six o'clock tomorrow morning and we're really excited about it. So thank you so much, Ed and Alana, for joining us this evening. And we hope that everybody really enjoys reading the issue. We've we're certainly enjoyed working on it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Helen. It was great. The Anesthesia Podcast.